This is an ABC podcast. Just a heads up, this story does contain some adult themes and language that is definitely not appropriate for small people. The KGB, they had this aura of sort of invincibility about them. The number of KGB officers in the country back in the 80s, a lot. Russian intelligence is extremely nuanced and very, very clever. They were incredibly dangerous because they were literally inside our walls. So they knew what was going on. There's great evidence to suggest that they had moles within ASIO and pretty much most of our intelligence operations against them were compromised right through the 70s and the 80s. Sergei was a nom de plume, let's be honest. It's not his real name. Sergei was what I call a suspected KGB intelligence officer that had jumped on a plane one morning and flown to Sydney without notifying foreign affairs in Canberra. That threw up a red flag at ASIO and we needed to get bodies on the ground to get on his tail to see what he was doing. Because if he's suddenly made this huge move to another city for no real purpose, that would indicate that some intelligence operation might be about to occur. Now, that could be a dead drop. It could be meeting up with a possible intelligence asset. It may be he's just going there to pick something up but we need to know what it is. And that's how I wound up flying to Sydney one morning to sit in a car and walk down Oxford Street. Welcome to Days Like These. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Being a spy, it's not always like the movies. Just ask David Callan. He worked at ASIO in the 1980s. And while the Cold War was at its frosty depths, David spent most of his working hours in the information management department. Even spies need to do filing. So imagine his excitement when one day he's told that he's been assigned to the surveillance operation watching Sergei, a suspected KGB agent. Keep an eye on him, see what he's up to. And soon, David's on his way to find out. It's 1988, peak Cold War. Usually, I'm pushing paper. Well, usually, I'm pushing a mail trolley, but not today. Today, I'm being sent on my first surveillance operation, dispatched to join a detachment of mobile surveillance officers watching someone called Sergei. And before I know it... Here I am. I'm in the street outside the Soviet consulate, as it was at the time. With very little training, but I was with the head of mobile surveillance. They actually had the boss with me. 
and we're waiting for the target to come out. This is a guy who was not meant to be here. Something's definitely on. We're pretty sure he's identified KGB. We want to know what he's doing. The idea of him using a poison umbrella to kill somebody, it was happening in Berlin, Beirut, London. But back then, that really wasn't something we were looking for. I was pumped. I was my first surveillance job for a guy who was never meant to do surveillance and I get pulled in to do this. I was like, this is it. I'm going, it's going to be all action. I was really ready for it to get James Bond. I was ready to be you know, leaping off tall buildings in a single bound. Which, which was great because my partner literally smacked me across the back of the head and said, don't be a dickhead, mate. I really don't have time for this. team talk to each other using radio comms, like a receiver pack tucked in your pants, a microphone concealed somewhere in your clothes, and a small earpiece, and generally a switch in your hand to turn the comms on and off. Getting information and giving instructions to the team while they're in motion. Target inside the Russian consulate building. Keep eyes on. So at this point, we've been in the car for about 10 or 15 minutes when Sergei walks out of the consulate and it's game on. Target on the move. He was almost the archetypal sort of dumpy Russian guy. Black suit, white shirt, black tie. Dark receding hair, 5'9", mid-40s. He had that squat sort of bureaucratic tone to him that was really unusual. And he was very nondescript. He was very unassuming. ID confirmed. Matches profile picture. Now, he was on foot. He was obviously not getting into a car. He walked down the street, pretty much in the direction we're going, and then he started walking. And the team just kept following him. We bounced forward. We moved up to Oxford Street because we assumed that was the direction he was heading. And assumption was good. We were right. Ditch the car. He's on Oxford Street. Surveillance nightmare. Anyone could be a contact. Stay sharp. So welcome to Oxford Street. This was where I first got on foot and was doing foot surveillance. Sergey had done what would have been regarded as standard counter surveillance. Checking windows, sudden stops, turning and walking back down the street in a different direction. Just the sort of things you'd expect somebody who was going to do a bit of counter surveillance would do. Still on Oxford Street. He's looking out for surveillance, so keep a distance and watch for a dead drop or a signal to possible contact. The spycraft we're looking for is, is he trying to send a message to somebody? So if he drops something into a garbage bin, one of us would have to go into the bin and get it because it could have something on it. If he's got a piece of chalk and he makes a mark on a wall, depending on where the mark is, it could be a signal to a contact. It could be any number of things. What was interesting was then he hit Oxford Street and the first thing he did was he went to the pub. And we thought, this is probably it. He's probably going into this pub, this is where he's going to meet his contact. And you have to go in. You can't sit outside and think, no, no, this is fine. We, we'll wait him out. You had to go in, in case he was meeting someone or in case that pub was a dead drop. Team one, follow target into the pub. Now. Essentially, this is what it would be like when we walked in. This is what it felt like. Follow me. So, here we are. We walk into the pub. 
And he's right here at the front door with a drink. It would have been a single, maybe a double shot of whiskey. He was having a great time. I mean, he was getting progressively drunker as he went along, but he wanted us to see him and he wanted to see us. Now, if he's burning us that hard, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? Team one, you're cooked. Head back to base. The look on his face was a shit-eating grin. He knew exactly what he was doing and he knew exactly what we were doing. That's what was hilarious about this. It was like, it became a running gag is who's gonna go and have a drink before they go back to the office because that's what's gonna happen if you go inside. Target getting on a bus towards the city. Get an agent there now. Target getting on a bus towards the city. He walks out of the pub and he gets straight onto a bus. Sergey just gets onto a bus. Now, my first thought was, yeah, you're probably a little tired. You've had a big walk and quite a few beers. That was a moment when all the surveillance guys really got head up. That's a classic counter surveillance trick is to get on public transport. You've got to put someone on that bus. There's got to be someone on there. And the thing is, when you're on there, you're completely exposed. There's nowhere to hide on a bus, really. Then, of course, when he got off the, the bus, he went into the nearest pub. Maybe he's going to make contact now. Maybe he's finally felt he's gotten rid of his surveillance. Target off bus. Target off bus. He's going into another pub. It's next to the bus stop. Team two, follow him in. Surveillance team follows him straight into the pub. And it's just another wave, another whiskey, and another shit-eating grin. He was playing us. Team two, you're burned. Get out of there. And it continued as we followed him further down Oxford Street. He just kept stopping in pubs. So we needed to make sure. But every time, he's sitting right at the front door with a glass in his hand. And as you walk through, he raised the glass to you. He was crazy. He was mad. All other surveillance teams are out. Ten agents burned. Operation still live. Repeat, still live. Do not lose him. Pretty much anyone that was on this operation is now off it because they've either been burnt or they've been retasked. Um, we're pretty sure that what this guy's meant to be doing or we expected him to do, it's probably not going to happen today, but we've got to keep eyes on. So it's me and the head of surveillance that's left. By that point, I don't think he was looking for us and I don't think he cared because, man, he was 10 sheets to the wind and picking up speed even then. So we follow him down Liverpool Street to George Street and that's when it really, really got twisted because he walked into a pornographic cinema. Now, I can remember looking at my partner going, are we doing this? And he's like, we're doing it. Let's go inside. And then we walk up a flight of stairs that had seen better days. It was not attractive. And we walked into a room. The first thing that assaulted you was the smell. It had a sort of musky odour to it, I think is the best way to describe it. It was set out like a cinema, a very small cinema. And honest to God, I didn't want to touch anything. 
I literally sort of pulled my hands back into my sleeves, folded my arms. Then we sat down in the back row and he was sitting about four or five rows in front of us watching this terrible, terrible pornographic movie. And then the movie ended and out walked a stripper. She then invited anyone in the audience if they wanted to join her on stage. Basically, for want of a better phrase, stood there and went, who wants to fuck me for 50 bucks? And lo and behold, Sergei did. I just went, really? And then Sergey pulled out a $50 bill and handed it to her and got on stage and then dropped his trousers. He was not the fittest man on earth. He had, well, let's just say he had plenty of fat for the winter. I'd say my jaw dropped to the floor, but if it hit the floor, it would have stuck to the floor. There was oral, there was a lot of groping. And then he lay down on the stage, she squatted over him, and the business was well and truly done. And yeah, that's a vision that you're not going to get out of your mind anytime soon. No one needs to see that. And it was... It was... It was a a grim and grotesque act. You don't need to go this far, but for some reason he thought, yep, let's, he was all in. And yeah, that's a vision that you're not going to get out of your mind anytime soon. A hard-bitten surveillance officer sitting next to me just went, you're kidding. And that's when he turned to me and said, we probably don't have the right man. Now, my first thought was, hang on, this is the guy we're meant to be following. And he was like, yeah, we are meant to be following him, but we shouldn't be following him. Whatever is going on today, this is not it. He's the distraction. We'd been following the wrong man. What was the point of all of this? And he just went, it's the game. This is the game. And today, we got played. Tomorrow, we might catch him out. I mean, I don't think we could catch him out any more than that. But he was set out there literally to draw attention away from what might be going on somewhere else. And we had to sit through that. Yeah. What an introduction to surveillance. A shocker. A shocker. Target dropped. Operation terminated. Not our day, team. Control out. So that night when he got back, 
There were reports of a domestic disturbance at his house uh, involving his wife and a frying pan. And he wasn't holding the frying pan, he was wearing it. And a few months after that, he returned to Moscow, never to be seen again. Funnily enough, at the same time we were running around Sydney, the cipher clerk from the Soviet embassy, which is a pretty much a declared intelligence position anyway, was camping with his wife and daughter up on the north coast of New South Wales. And at the same time he was camping, the Soviets had kicked a satellite out of its normal orbit to orbit over the campsite. The suspicion would be that he was there with a communications device sending intelligence up to the bird to be sent back to Moscow. So it sounds like somebody that should have been followed wasn't. You've got to admire that kind of intelligence. You really do. I just thought, you clever buggers. If you want to hear more of David's tales of misadventure in espionage, you can take a listen to his podcast. It's called I Spied. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story about a huge day in your life that you'd like to share, please send us an email or a voice memo. Our address, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. If you haven't already, follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. We love hearing what you think and it helps new people find the show. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. This episode was reported by James Viver. Our lead reporter is Padabud. Sound design on this episode by James Viver and Angie Grant. The supervising producer was Tom Wright. And our brilliant executive producers are Rachel Fountain, Sophie Townsend and Ian Walker. Our theme song is Yeah Now by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next time.
next episode of Days Like These, when Jane Rowe tries her first hit of heroin, the relief it offers is undeniable. Rebelling against her privileged upbringing, she throws herself into the punk scene of 1970s London, rubbing shoulders with rock stars and moguls, and soon picking up some of their habits too. Things are out of control. I know that, obviously, because I'm sick in the day if I don't have it. I can't go and visit my mum for the weekend if I don't have enough to keep me well over the weekend. I know I'm in trouble. My liberation's gone. I can't go away unless I know that I've got heroin with me or there'll be someone that will have it. So I know I'm in trouble, but I'm going to give this up. I'm just going to have this one last hit. But when the party's over and Jane's rattled by the aftershocks of addiction, she sets out to rescue the forgotten victims of drug abuse. That's on the next episode of Days Like These. While you're waiting until next week, why not try another great ABC podcast? Like this one. When Sydney journalist Juanita Nielsen disappeared, she sparked off one of this country's biggest crime mysteries. 46 years ago, almost to the day of this release, my aunt Juanita vanished. It's one of Australia's most notorious unsolved cases. Mrs Nielsen from a wealthy Sydney family was last seen alive on July the 4th, 1975. Juanita walked into a nightclub that morning in July for a meeting. It was broad daylight and she just vanished. Her body has never been found. Almost 46 years after Juanita Nielsen disappeared, the government is offering a million-dollar reward to help find her remains. Just three weeks ago, Juanita's case made headlines again. The Sydney journalist was known for her activism with the Green Bands. The tragic disappearance of Juanita in 1975 is one of Sydney's horrible, unsolved mysteries. The state police investigation into Juanita's disappearance has gone for decades and there was a coronial inquest into her suspected death that delved deep into the underbelly of King's Cross. I believe she was murdered by people who knew exactly what they were doing. But my family still don't have answers. At the time Juanita disappeared, it was rumoured that she was costing developers millions per day. Juanita Nielsen was a crusader. She ran a King's Cross newspaper and used her influence to fight developers who wanted to demolish heritage housing and build apartments. Juanita was a journalist and an activist. She lived on a street that was set to be destroyed by developers and she wanted to protect it. Juanita Nielsen was the editor of a crusading Sydney newspaper. In the process of some of her campaigns, she made a lot of enemies. There was violence. There were killers. There were corrupt police. And there were people who wanted Juanita out of the way. She was last seen here at the Carousel Club. It was owned by a Sydney businessman, Mr Abe Saffron and run for him by a Mr Jim Anderson. What would Jim have to say to Juanita? Well, you know, friends of mine are um, involved in Victoria Street. If you value your kneecaps, leave it alone. My family has lived with this mystery for more than four decades. I want to know why, why my family hasn't gotten answers. Every year, 
that passes and it's further away from Juanita's death, we lose more and more possibility to solve the murder. Time is running out, so we've agreed we need to start our own investigation. We were convinced already that she'd been murdered. If you really threaten power, they'll kill you. It's that simple. Juanita Nielsen was collateral damage. Over seven episodes, I speak with people involved in Juanita's case who have never spoken publicly before. I track down new leads and witnesses and uncover powerful new evidence. They don't want the truth to come out. I wouldn't, you know, kill women or kids. Just crazy guys. (laughs) Did you kill Juanita? My name is Kieran McGee. Join me for Juanita, the latest season of Unravel True Crime. The first two episodes land on July 13. You can listen to Unravel on the ABC Listen app or follow us wherever you get your podcasts.